you know, one of the things I've learned in my journey is uh, courageous conversations are where we make a difference. In, I mean, it's, it's made a difference in my own life, you know, pushing myself uh, out of my comfort zone, even to have talks like this, you know, sharing my, my story, my experience, strength and hope, my testimony. Welcome to Soulcraft Stories. These are conversations with people that are, in spite of the challenges, hurdles, and the mundane, are writing meaningful and fulfilling life stories. Like you and me, they have families, jobs, responsibilities, basically real-life stuff we all deal with. But they aren't waiting for someday, because that day might be too late to get your story started. They have, in their own ways, fought back against the resistance of excuses, society, laziness, and a bunch of other crap that, in the end, when the final chapter is written, is meaningless anyways. They've pursued travel, overcome addictions, learned new skills, and set big goals for themselves. Their stories aren't unique, but they're unique to them. So join me as we learn from each one of them and take their insight, advice, and turn it into permission for ourselves to stop procrastinating and start writing our own great life story. This one reads like a Hollywood script. A Fortune 500 C-level executive. A high-flying lawyer. Then, FBI raids. A decades-long legal battle. A cancer scare. And a stint in the big house. And then, redemption. Which leads to not just a new chapter, but an entirely new story. It all sounds like Hollywood, but it is Thad's story, and it is an inspiring one. He's a very brave and humble dude that is graciously sharing his story. So join me in a conversation with Thad Baraday. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man. Thanks for thanks for being on, spending time out of your, your busy day to hang out with me for a little bit, so... I'm very psyched about it. You know, one of the things I've learned in my journey is uh, courageous conversations are where we make a difference. In, I mean, it's, it's made a difference in my own life, you know, pushing myself uh, out of my comfort zone, even to have talks like this, you know, sharing my, my story, my experience, strength and hope, my testimony. Um, it's not something, you know, 10 years ago I would have been comfortable with. So I'm glad to do it. That's And we'll get into it. Um, but that's kind of interesting. You said 10 years ago, you wouldn't be comfortable doing this. And you were kind of, for lack of a better term, the high flying corporate exec, you know, with the, with the fame and, and fortune to match. And you think somebody in that position could do anything. I had it all. I, I was living the American dream. I, I, you know, um, had a good family, great education, you know, Ivy League schools, high-flying uh, attorney and corporate executive. And um, I'm not gonna lie, we were riding high at WellCare. We, we were the hottest IPO on Wall Street uh, in the healthcare space at our time. And um, everything was going great until it wasn't. And, and that day for me was in October, 2007, when 200 FBI agents raided our corporate headquarters in a very um, violent and orchestrated uh, ambush of our company. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the game was over on that day. Hmm. It's like a something you see in the movies, really, is what happened to you. I mean, they literally came in, stormed through the doors and walk us walk us through that day yeah it was crazy so the the raid was timed to coincide with a meeting of our public company board of directors so um that's a big day you know quarterly yeah. uh, board of directors meeting um all the you know boss we we, we had a, a lot of famous people on our board very very active uh very effective board and um the government timed the raid to coincide when when all of the head honchos were in town. It's just like you see in in the movies. Um, 
you know, flak jackets, sidearms, the windbreakers with FBI across the back, screaming at people to, you know, step away from their desks, you know, uh, not touch their computers. Um, what I've learned, and of course, other than seeing it on TV, I had absolutely no experience with anything like this and was like everyone utterly shocked that this was happening at our company because we ran a good business and took a lot of pride in it. But the, the government creates a climate of terror and fear in order to get the result that they're seeking. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was when that large of a mobilization of government resources occurs, somebody's put their badge on the line and somebody's going to jail. And in this case, that somebody was me. I just hadn't figured it out yet. There were other people in my midst who had, but I hadn't. And I spent the next decade um, trying to defend the company and then myself and and the other individuals who were impacted and uh, didn't turn out so well. I mean, we'll get into some of the outcomes of that. Um, as I know, you know, reading, reading about your story and stuff, and then you and I talking, but for, for our listeners and stuff and those on their own journey, and we're going to jump in and I'm going to launch this and, and this is the intro and they're going to be like, what the hell? Holy shit. <laughs> we got, we got this guy on with the FBI agents coming in, but what happened to that point? Like you said, you spent years defending. So there wasn't a again, going back to the movies, um, you know, a Bernie Madoff type of deal. This was much different. So so give some folks some color commentary, if you will, on that and what kind of happened. Yeah, so um, the underlying issue at stake in, in the Wellcare case was a obscure feature of Florida Medicaid law and regulation. It's um, not exactly you know, the burning bush on Mount Sinai. It's, it's a very technical issue. And it was a known ambiguous area in the regulatory structure that governed us. The, I should start by saying the healthcare industry is highly, highly regulated, um, probably second only to the air transportation industry. So there are a myriad of laws, rules, and regulations that govern the way we do business. And as the company's chief legal officer, that's the world in which I lived. And, and we had a very strong legal infrastructure at that point, a very strong compliance program, which I was the, the leader of. And we tried very hard to comply with all laws, rules, and regulations that faced our business. But it was a constant challenge because there were new regulations coming out, new interpretations, um, differences of opinion about old rules. And, and this was just the world that we lived in, we, we reported to literally dozens of different regulatory agencies across states and in the federal government and complied with literally thousands of different rules that were applicable to our business. We were audited multiple times per year by different agencies at different levels. And, um, you know, we thought we were pretty good at it. The, the second thing I'd say about that is after the decade-long struggle that was my journey and my saga post-wellcare. Much of that has been very well documented and, and you know, litigated and, and um, resolved through the legal system. Um, it wasn't resolved the way that I felt it should have been, but um, it, it, was, it was resolved in a way that's now final and done. And we can debate perhaps today or perhaps another day, you know, whether it was fair uh, to the executives in question and to myself in particular, but that's really not my cause today. I'm really not here to relitigate what happened at WellCare. I, I spent too many years in conference rooms with lawyers sort of pouring over emails and thinking about what, what could I have done better, you know, what mistakes did I make? And, and believe me, there are plenty. I, I really feel that my calling now is to draw attention to the challenges in the criminal justice system and the thousands of people who are being negatively affected by the unfairness in that system. So I hope we get to talk yeah, about that. Absolutely. Well, well, so what I'd like to do with that is then kind of from that major turning point in your life is back up a little bit and talk about 
your story before that point, as you touched on high flying executive, prominent company, creating headlines, IPOs. I mean, against stuff that a lot of people never get to experience. And it's frankly rarefied air, um, which creates a certain type of story for some folks. And you said it um, in one of the articles um, I read, and I'm going to tee it up for what happened after that turning point is how compassion plays in and you touched on it. So we're going to tie into that, but walk us through Thad's story prior to that and who was that and what kind of story were you leading? Sure. So um, I, I had a great life. I was the son of an immigrant father who came to this country from Warsaw, Poland, uh, lifted his way up through um, American society, was a, a brilliant scholar, uh, became a professor at Columbia University. Uh, my, my mom had a doctorate, so I grew up in a family of education, and, and my dad was a professor of education, so was raised to believe that education was the primary and most important um, goal for a family and, and for a parent to, to give to his children. My dad didn't make a lot of money as a college professor, but he managed to uh, afford for my sister and I, it was just the two of us, the best education that money could buy. So I, I grew up in a very privileged background. I went to private school my whole life, went to a boarding school, was very lucky to get into Brown University um, and, and grew up in New England, Northeastern society uh, around a lot of white, wealthy, elite, people. And I, um, honestly, I, I felt very privileged and, and, and blessed, but I, but I took that privilege for granted. You know, I just, the luck of my birth, not any particular merit that was owing to me. I tried to make the best of it. My dad became a lawyer late in his career and that inspired me. And I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from an early age. I was always terrible at math and, and good with words. So um, I wound up going to law school and I, I really um, found my calling there. My college years involved a lot of extracurricular activities outside the classroom, but in law school, I sort of started to, to pull myself together academically. By then had met my uh, fiance and then wife, mother of my four children, sadly uh, were divorced, which is at the end of this uh, journey and, and one of the uh, many serious consequences of my behavior and decision-making that caused all this trouble. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 was, I was living the American dream. Did well as a lawyer. I, I went to sort of white shoe corporate law firms, was on a partnership track, you know, working very, very hard. I was always uh, fearful that I wasn't the the smartest guy in the room because I was always, you know, I grew up around very smart people, and um, I, I'd learned from my dad to to make that up with hard work. So I figured if I, if I couldn't be the smartest, I could, I could out hustle and out outwork the next guy. And so, hard work and perseverance became my strength. I would say the dark side of that, and you know, there are always two sides to to every issue, was uh, a lack of balance and tendency toward workaholism is something I, I still wrestle with. Mm. How, how old are your kids during that time period as you moved up the ranks and, and stuff and went into well care? Yeah, so I, I have four kids. Um, uh, the first two are twins and they just graduated from college. So they're 22, 22, and then I have a 19 and a 16 year old. So they're, they're reasonably spaced. I also figured out fairly early in my career that I wanted to be closer to the business decision-making process. So I vectored away from outside private practice to the in-house practice of law as an in-house general counsel. So I left my first law firm, which was Jones Day, to go to um, a company, a public company called Smart Talk back in the internet and telecom revolution, this was sort of in the uh, early 90s, was a very you know, high-flying telecom company. And um, it flew a little too too high, too fast, and then unfortunately crashed and burned also. So I have that in my background, but that was my first tour of duty as an in-house general counsel. 
then I went back into uh, private practice and then ultimately made my way to WellCare. So to answer your question, there were several stops in the business resume where I was sort of doing the corporate gypsy thing, moving from city to city in pursuit of my career. And my kids were being born along the way. So my my kids were born um, in 92 in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my first, my twins, and then uh, my middle child, who's 19, was born in Washington, D.C., and then my youngest was born here in Tampa. To what degree did, during this process, obviously you have to put in a tremendous amount of effort and time, like you said, hustle, and it's that, I think a lot of us feel what you were talking about is the imposter syndrome. I'm sitting around the room, and I'm the dumbest guy in the room, so I got to work my ass off. <laughs> But I often think that comes at a price of the comes at a price of something because it's a choice. And did that have an effect on your family relationships with your wife and kids and stuff at the time, good or bad or indifferent? Yeah, no, no doubt. It was it was a challenge, and um, through my career, and and certainly through um, the tail end of my career you know, with, with, with WellCare um, running into the substantial challenges that it did, um, my family suffered a great deal. And, and being a uh, C-suite executive in a Fortune 500 company is not an easy life. It, it, it's a tough job. And um, I'm sure there are many executives who do it better than I, but for me, it was my total passion, commitment, and lifestyle. I, I worked unbelievable hours, you know, 80, 120 hour weeks routinely, um, conference calls at 10 at night, midnight, weekends, vacations canceled. Work was the first priority and, and family was, was very, very important. Um, and I did my best, but uh, the, the circumstances of my career were, were very challenging and um, at the maximum of my capacity. So I did the, I, I, I do feel I did the best I could. I always tried very hard, but it was, it was very difficult to maintain a balanced life. And in hindsight, I couldn't, should have done a lot better. Um, hmm. And I think that's just insightful because we hear about the position you were in, the, the C-suite executives, the high-flying attorneys, that 80, 120 hours. And a, a lot of us work in our careers to get higher up that corporate ladder to put ourselves in that position without necessarily realizing those sacrifices. So to, to kind of hear that from someone who's been there, I think is insightful and give some of us, should give some of us pause to say, hey, what am I, what am I chasing? And that leads me to the turning point. You talked about the day uh, they stormed in and I'll let you share kind of what the outcome that, as you know, where I'm going with this, where you spent some time that I don't think you would ever wish anybody to spend time. But that turning point then in your life and what perspective it gave you in personally and professionally in the outcomes of that? Well, so to, to sort of go back where we were in terms of um, the story of a few moments ago, when I first learned what it was that the government was interested in, Florida Medicaid uh, behavioral health uh, refund issue, I was relieved because it was an issue that I had known about and uh, we had worked on and I felt that because we'd had lawyers look at it, we must have gotten it right. And so I would, at, at the time, despite the massive display of resources, which was, as I said, terrifying and certainly impressive, I thought it would all just end well hmm. because I thought we would be vindicated. And I thought the truth would set us free to, to paraphrase a famous quote. But I was very inexperienced. In fact, I was naive about the operation of the criminal justice system. 
And even though I was a high-flying, sophisticated lawyer doing public company mergers and acquisitions, and you know, people look to me as a sophisticated person, particularly on legal matters. You know, you're an officer of the court and you're expected to know things. But I was truly ignorant about the criminal justice system. In fact, I didn't even think it would ever matter in my life. I'm, I'm rather ashamed to say, but um, didn't think it affected me. I thought the system was working, criminals got what they deserved, and frankly, it was something that was relevant to Black people, not someone like me. So um, the next 10 years working through that system were quite an eye-opening education for me. And I was shocked and horrified to learn early on that in the context of the criminal justice system, as opposed to the civil system that I was more experienced with, you actually have less rights to due process than you do in, in the civil side. Wow. And it really makes no sense because you have fewer process and protections uh, when your liberty is at stake than you do when your property is at stake. And- it's Crazy. Yeah, and, and, and high, high school civics terms that we all learned like due process, like right to confront witnesses, like innocent until proven guilty, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, having your day in court, all those types of, you know, foundational constitutional sort of civil law concepts that we wrap ourselves around as American citizens, in fact, are designed to make us feel comfortable about how the criminal justice system is operating in practice when in fact, it is operating in a way that is patently unfair and ultimately discriminatory to people in black and brown communities. Wow. I'm guilty as, as you would put it, you know, you use the word ashamed. You don't think about it. Folks like up until that point, until you were thrust into it, by their decision. Um, and, and, it, and I wanted to state for everybody listening, what Thad just walked through, this was not some evil plot that you and the corporate executives were scheming. It was literally a, I'm no lawyer, so I'm a, I'm a business guy, but you, I understand a little bit of the, the corporate side of things. And there are so many pieces to navigate and you have teams of experts like you said and you think you're doing the right thing and all of a sudden this comes and really it's a blindside type of issue so to go through that blind if you will it sounds like you were saying and then to have that eye-opening experience so you spent some so the result of that you spent some time in prison correct well so um let uh Yes, let, let, me, let me go back and sure. tell the story a little bit there. So the first order of business was to secure the status of operations for the company, for the business. This, this was a life-threatening event for what had become a highly successful uh, business uh, on which the healthcare of 3 million poor and elderly patients relied to get their medical services. So um, there was an immediate crisis that was the uh, order of the day to just sort of circle the wagons and secure the, the operations integrity and, and really livelihood of the business. Um, that mostly occurred without me, frankly, because uh, a special committee was formed and the first thing they did was kick existing management to the curb, including myself, our CEO, our CFO, myself, and, and eventually on down the line. And, and that is one of my profound re regrets from the whole experience of WellCare is the impact on the company and 
um, the community of constituents and stakeholders that revolved around the business, our employees, our, our customers, our members. I mean, on the employee side, these were people who were my friends, who were my colleagues, and people who relied on me as their lawyer to protect them. And this was obviously a catastrophic failure uh, for the company from a legal standpoint, for which I felt very, very responsible. Um, obviously, our stockholders lost a lot of money, and you know, so they're the 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 list of those affected goes on and on. And I haven't gotten to you know me and my family, but frankly, that's just further on down the road. Um, I was concerned about the business, but after the business no longer needed my services. I was concerned about those communities that I mentioned. And um, once the company was able to resolve uh, its issues with the government, which took about two years, um, the government then turned toward focusing on a smaller group of individuals. To your point about the merits of this, you know, the. The government has its own version of events that's very different than what you articulated, um, which was more consistent with, with my view of the world. There really wasn't a whole lot of dispute about what happened at WellCare. The set of facts are quite known and um, discovered. We orchestrated a business strategy that was in our self-interests and um, helped the company and its shareholders maximize their returns, but it was aggressive and was taking advantage of a loophole in the way that the law was designed. And we thought it was perfectly legal and um, designed it to be so, but the government came in and looked at that same business strategy and declared it a fraud. So that became a very important lesson for me that I'd like to return to. Um, as we get to the point of lessons, because like, like I said, the, the, the game was over on the day that the 200 FBI agents came and raided our company. And um, now knowing what I know about how the criminal justice system operates, one cannot even put oneself in the position where you can be subject to this type of allegation because the mere allegation in and of itself is enough condemnation that it's very hard to dig your way out of. And trust me, I spent a decade trying. Doing it. Like you said, it's really guilty until proven innocent. And then the proven innocent portion is, is trying to push a rope, basically. So the, the government proceeded to make its case, again, there, and ironically, by the government's own admission, there were 85 unindicted co-conspirators who were um, part and parcel to this uh, offense that we had committed that triggered all of this. So if this was the crime of the century, it was the worst kept secret in the world because 85 people in our company were working on it and knew about it. And and believe me, I, I wish I could have charged Sergeant Schultz the whole thing and said I didn't know about it, didn't touch my desk, never happened. But unfortunately, I had worked on it in the very early days when we first purchased WellCare, when there was one other lawyer in the company and myself. And so it had crossed my desk and I had worked on it. So um, I, I couldn't just, you know, yeah. put, put my head in the sand and, and look the other way. Of, the, of that smaller community of individuals, the government eventually proceeded against five of us, the top five guys uh, in the hierarchy. There, there was a whistleblower. There was um, a very un unfortunate uh, person who was a friend of the whistleblower who had um, been persuaded to take a guilty plea very early on. And he was the person responsible for preparing the numbers that we were all relying on as part of this regulatory submission. And he was the guy who ultimately testified against us. So they had a whistleblower, they had an insider, and they proceeded against the top five guys uh, in the hierarchy, the CEO, the CFO, and myself included in that. And there was a, a, a finance guy who had supervised the, the numbers calculator and the head of the business unit in question. So that became the target uh, audience of defendants, five of us. 
And we were then preparing to defend ourselves at what was going to be the trial of the century in Tampa. It was a three month legal trial. Uh, almost every lawyer in town had a piece of it. It was a, a very you know, high profile front page headline event in, in our community. And I was terrified and I was praying for God to rescue me. And um, two weeks before the trial, I came down with leukemia. And it was totally unexpected. And I was having a Gray's Anatomy conversation with an oncologist and, and my wife was weeping. And I, I said, doctor, I can't have cancer. I need to be in federal court in two weeks. And he's like, no, Mr. Verity, you're not going. So I wound up getting separated from the other four guys uh, while I lay in bed in Moffitt Cancer Center going through chemotherapy and getting treated for cancer, the other four guys went ahead with the trial. My wife, who's also an attorney, went to the trial every day and reported to me what was going on. I got three trial transcripts. And um, I felt not only miserable, you know, nausea and waves of sickness and, you know, just from having cancer and chemotherapy, but but on top of that crippling guilt from not being there with my colleagues who were going through the fight of their lives while I was going through the fight of my own. Um, so that was really the first eye opener about how, I mean, this, this now was becoming not only the worst thing that had ever happened to me, but, but truly a life threatening event. And um, Unfortunately, all four of my colleagues were, went ahead and were convicted of something. There were a lot of problems at the original trial, but they were ultimately convicted. Um, the verdicts were curious, but the government got a win. And then the focus shifted to the appeal because my four colleagues hired the best lawyers in the country and were really going to try and, and right the wrongs that they perceived um, happening at the trial and so moved forward with the appeal. And then two weeks before the oral arguments in the appellate proceeding, my cancer relapsed. So it was another very high stress moment when the legal frenzy was crescendoing and suddenly I was having these catastrophic life-threatening health impacts. That was 2015. In 2016, I went on to receive, so I was back in Moffitt Cancer Center, more chemotherapy, but in 2016, I went on to receive a life-saving bone marrow transplant. It's a very difficult procedure. It's like an organ donation. Um, you're, you have no immune system. You're literally sort of the boy in the bubble. So I had uh, six months of medical isolation. It was very hard on my wife and my family. And um, when I, and, 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 the, and um, while I was recovering from that, the verdict and the appeal came out and it was unfavorable. All the convictions had been affirmed. Um, and in fact, the appellate court had a different perspective on the case than had been the case at the trial level. And that made the case worse for me. So when I emerged from my cancer in 2017, I was hoping that the system would show me mercy, just given all that I had been through health-wise, but that was not the case. And it was clear that uh, the prosecution was going to move against me for what would have been now the third surge of legal activity um, in this decade-long saga. And um, my wife and I were just very concerned that I literally would not survive that experience physically. So I wound up negotiating a plea agreement and um, pled guilty to a, a single count of making a false statement, uh, was hoping for, again, a merciful sort of probation type sentence in, in light of my health risks. Um, but the, the court wanted to make an example of, of this uh, situation and felt that I needed to go to prison for six months. So I, I went to federal prison uh, for six months and then served, uh, I had three years of supervised release as part of my sentence. 
the first year of which was home confinement. So um, I was six months in jail and then 12 months on an ankle monitor where I was um, confined to home. So um, that was, uh, that was, that was rough. I mean, not gonna lie, fed, federal prison sucks. It's uh, not the Martha Stewart um, scenario that, that, you know, it has the reputation for being. It's, uh, it's something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I would never recommend it. But um, um, sometimes the universe doesn't give you what you want, but gives you what you need. And in my case, the prison experience was somehow quite redemptive and restorative. Hmm. So, so tell us about redemption and restoration through that, because if you'd put money on it, I would have never guessed those two words that you would <laughs> would have said that was the experience of your, your prison term. So walk us through why that was. So, you know, my, my health issues aside, up to this point in my life, I had been living a privileged existence and, and fairly high flying. And um, obviously in prison, I met and lived with people from different walks of life that I otherwise never would have seen. I mean, they were literally my bunk mates. And, um, not a lot works well in uh, federal prison, in, in my experience. You know, being, like I said, being a guest of the Federal Bureau of Prisons is not a very high-level accommodation. But what worked well at Jessup Federal Prison Camp, where I was, was the men's Christian ministry. And I read more scripture in that. I'd always been a good Christian for, you know, most of my life. So this was not a jailhouse conversion for me, but I'd been, you know, very busy and, and doing other things. And so um, for me, it was a very faithful and religious experience. So I, I read uh, more scripture in that six months than I'd read in the previous 30 years. I uh, went to daily prayer circle I went to twice a week Bible study, twice a week worship. I walked in faith with a strong group of Christian men, all inmates, who lifted me up and helped me seek and, and, and um, hopefully find a new purpose in my life dedicated to service. And I came out of prison with a very strong conviction that I had spent most of my life off track and I now needed to refocus my purpose in service to community. And one of the articles and how we connected in the Business Observer, I think you had mentioned something along the lines of before all that happened was your story, as we talk about our stories here, was what can it do from Thad, my story? What can this do for me versus now? And you just were alluding to it. What can I do for others? Correct. And, and how, yeah. so that, go ahead. Yeah, so, so um, my, my therapist likes to say that the first part of life is devoted to ego and the second half of life is devoted to soul. So that's, that's not a bad way to frame it, but um, I am convinced in my case, and really I can only speak for myself, um, I spent the main portion of my life and career in pursuit of ego-driven ends. And, and, and I'll go further to say, I, because I come from a faith tradition, um, it may not be everyone's, but it is my own, I, I view it as false gods, false prophets, money, wealth, status, power, um, all the things that we sort of think of as the American dream, mm -hmm. but we also recognize in our better selves, in our soulful selves, as being 
a little bit empty and superficial. And so you need to keep those things in balance and perspective. And I didn't do a good job of that in the first half of my life. Hmm. I am now dedicating my life to living amends to my children and my family, but more importantly, to the broader community and to my faith in um, finding ways that I can be helpful to the least of these, as scripture says. And why do you think that is that I'm always curious and I have my own assumptions and beliefs on it, but like you said, our pursuit of ego in the early stages of our life and then we become through, I'll say, catastrophic experiences like yours and to a lesser extent some of us have different experiences but we have this sort of turning point in terms of being more of service shifting that focus to saying hey we're missing that what's your opinion of why we get to that point because we're not we're not necessarily i don't think hardwired to always pursue ego right so there's something that's or some things that have triggered that i'd love to i'd love to hear what you think about it and how that occurs in a lot of people well so you know i i, I think brian you're really talking about the uh, a faith tradition and and um I, I i put it that way because i worry and get concerned about sounding too churchy and and too preachy because a huge objective of the church that I'm now a member of is to approach people for whom religion is off-putting. And, and we want to be very open to people from all walks of life and all traditions, Christian or non, uh, believers or non, but people who are looking to fill a hole, avoid within them that they might otherwise fill with less healthy decisions. So um, I think, you know, human nature at, at the basis is to be self-interested. You know, we want food, we want shelter, we want love, we want, you know, our basic necessities to, to be met. And, you know, to some extent, those are ego-driven. And, and I don't have a problem with self-interest or ego in in the main. I mean, a, a lot of human ingenuity and industry has been accomplished on the backs of that. So ego gets stuff done, yeah. but at our at our best, we also have a compassionate concern about our fellows in community. And that too, I think, is part of our base nature. It's why the universe has granted the miracle of love and we have the capacity to be loving, kind, and compassionate to, to others. And when we do that, that too can be in our own self-interest because, you know, we can have families, we can have societies, we can have cities, you know, we can, we can, we can advance as, as a people uh, by looking out for each other and taking care of each other. So I think it's a tension. I, 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 I don't think it's an either or. Um, I think some people come to it sooner and more easily than I did. Um, but there are others who still haven't come to it yet and, and are, you or know, never do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think faith works in different ways. Some people have, you know, a defining moment where it strikes them and they, you know, see a vision and suddenly they are changed and, and, and lead a more godly life. Um, in, in my case, the, the, the process has been much more gradual and I may be thick skulled and the universe has had to hit me over the head with a two by four on multiple occasions, but I have sort of stair-stepped my way to gradually getting the message and um, realizing that when Thad works 
in service, not only to his own ego, because, you know, there's still, I, I, would, I wouldn't be honest if I said there isn't some of that, but, but when I work not beyond my ego in service to others and to the broader community, not only am I a better person, but the world around me is better. And without getting too philosophical, um, I, I think it was Freud that made the argument is to serve others is essentially egotistical because it makes you feel good and it's okay, but it's part of our story. So tell us about this next chapter in terms of, and that's a great word you use, the tension. You still have it. You still admit it's there. It's, it's part of us. It's our ego, but balancing that with the compassion is your word and what you're doing now out in the community and how that's fulfilling this kind of new journey. Almost, I say chapters with folks, but you're really, this is a, this is a really new journey from where you were before. So yeah, talk to us about that. Okay. Um, so uh, when I came out of prison, I felt called to serve. And I did not have community service as part of my sentence, but I nonetheless felt that serving the community was the next right thing for me to do. And I had been a longstanding churchgoer for many years, but my church was not especially service oriented or, or socially justice motivated. And I found a church that was. And when I went to my current church, which is called the Portico, um, I found a citadel of social justice warriors. These were people that I had only you know, seen on TV and marches or causes and wondered sort of who is that? And suddenly I was among them and learned how they were changing the community at the grassroots one person at a time. And they taught me how to serve others. I uh, joined an amazing ministry that I'm now um, on the board of directors for called Love Inc., which is kind of ironic, but it actually stands for Love in the Name of Christ, not Love Incorporated. And um, uh, learned the, the principles of service that they uh, teach, which are called redemptive compassion, which involves walking in relationship with those in need to help them achieve a transformative solution. So it's kind of a tough love approach. It's not involving handouts, it's hand ups. And it's, you know, the, the old proverb of, you know, teaching a man to fish rather than giving them a fish. And it's helping the individuals we serve to transform their own lives to be the best person that they can be, um, living to their highest potential. So I learned that and I started working in um, a men's homeless ministry, uh, working with guys coming from the streets, all of whom had issues of um, mental health, addiction, um, uh, economic, educational challenges, and issues of law enforcement. Many of them, like me, were coming out of the criminal justice system and um, striving to overcome those challenges. And then I started to draw the connection between that work and race and realized that issues of racial prejudice and um, oppression in this country were sort of underlying this system that I was working in and I didn't even realize it. And, and for me, that really was catalyzed you know, last summer after George Floyd, when people in our congregation and community started asking, you know, what can we do? How does this affect us? How do we as you know, rich white people relate to these challenges that you know black people are complaining about and how should we be helpful 
And it was one of those situations where, you know, everyone takes a step back and the person left forward is volunteering, but I became the leader of the justice ministry um, in our church. And so transitioned a little away from uh, homelessness and, and the issues I had been working on to for focus more closely on uh, justice and the criminal justice system. And then something really remarkable happened. Um, January of, of this year, uh, Inauguration Day, I woke up to the uh, transition in administration that I think regardless of your political leanings, uh, we were all ready and welcoming a change and perhaps a return to some normalcy. And I got the incredible surprise news that um, on his last day in office, President Trump had granted me a full and unconditional presidential pardon. So, um, Wow. That was a complete surprise. It was not something I had asked for or expected and had literally no idea. So you weren't I, lobbying or anything for it? You didn't have and no, I had I had no no role whatsoever. So wow. you know, it was yet another thunderbolt, if you will. Um in and in this case, an incredible act of mercy that's transformative. And um, I immediately dropped to my knees. I was extremely grateful, um, but yet I also recognized the incredible pain and suffering that had occurred in my midst and around me over the last decade. And, and here I'm not even thinking about, you know, me or my family, my children, or you know the employees, the 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 members we serve, the shareholders of Wellcare. We just put the whole Wellcare community aside. Um, you know, not to mention the the system that it had at this point devoted a lot of resources to to prosecuting us. But really, it was the hundreds of thousands of people who are coming into contact with the criminal justice system on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. And, and, and in many cases being locked up, thrown away for exorbitant amounts of punishment, well in excess of the amount needed in order to reform their bad behavior. And don't have access to the money, wealth, status, privilege that I had. And, you know, you don't have to feel sorry for me. I had the best lawyers that money could buy and, and I had a pretty rough go with the system. But for the average kid on the corner being thrown over the hood of the cruiser, and that's the starting point, they don't have a chance. And, and I knew from that moment that that God was working in me to call attention to that problem. And, and as I go now in my journey and sharing my message and my testimony, I meet people like me who are like, and maybe like you, Brian, who are like, wow, I never really even thought about this. It's, you know, I didn't really think the criminal justice system mattered. Yeah. And, and, and my, my goal is at, at the outset is to raise awareness and, and remind people that this matters that it's important and it goes on and to that end Thad what would you recommend because for me personally you know I, I don't watch the news because I, I think there's zero value there <laughs> <laughs> and if people it. want to debate me on that that's fine but <laughs> but from George Floyd and and before that and on it goes to your point is we're we're insulated and i say we're um i live a good life like you said you know i'm in the suburbs we we do okay all those things and there's a dis disconnect and then you hear the things like we'll have a conversation open up your ears but in all honesty i i don't know what that conversation to be i don't want to walk up to somebody and say hey Tell me why it's, you know what I'm, I'm asking, like you've, you're there, you're engaged. What could you recommend to 
guys like me and folks like us to say, where do we start? So we can maybe jump in. And at the outset, I think it is listening. It is those conversations and understanding, but I have no clue how to do it. How do we do that? Yeah. So, so you're, you're right. It, 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 and, and I have learned this through my own walk. Like I said, at the outset of this, Brian, telling my story and sharing my experience in this way is not exactly something I'm comfortable with. It's not something I would normally do. And I do believe it is through courageous conversations that push us to the edge of our comfort zone is where transformation happens. So it starts in community with your own family, your friends around the dinner table, around you know the ball game, whatever. Um, being aware and 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 um, being conscious to the issues and trying to move the needle wherever you can. I mean, we, I'm, we, you know, I don't think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm dedicating my life to this and, and this is um, now a calling for me, but it's not for everyone. You know, we all have busy lives and, and things that we have to do, but you will encounter experiences and opportunities in your own life, in your own discourse, where you can move the needle a little bit closer toward the spectrum of mercy. Look, I, I, I've been a law and order Republican my whole life. I'm, I'm all about safe communities. I back the blue. I mean, I, 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 I get it, right? We, we, no one wants uh, criminals to go unpunished or be released in society where they can do harm to our families. You know, that's, that's, that's not what I'm all about. But our system does an incredibly good job of imposing punishment under the guise of justice. But it then raises the question of how much punishment is enough and how much is too much. And, and my, my mandate, my belief is that if we can adjust the dials just a little bit to move down the scale and spectrum toward mercy, we will be better off. So specifics of that, and, and look, it, the challenge with criminal justice reform is I'm learning, and, and really it's a challenge with any policy issue or, or any difficult topic in America, and this is where the new, you know, news media gets problem. The devil's in the details. So you gotta be careful what you, what assumptions, what opinions you make from the very limited base of information that you get from headlines or social media or other sort of sources of knowledge. So, um, you know, my advice to guys like us is let's try and refrain from judgment hmm. um, so quickly, thinking we know about things when we, unless we've really devoted the time to study the issue. And, and, and when you're in a period of not knowing, let's try and be the better version of ourselves and show up a little bit with a little bit more radiance, a little bit more compassion, a little bit more love and a little bit more mercy towards our fellows, even if they look different from us. You know, I, I, I hang around now with a lot of people I never would have expected that I, uh, you know, would live with. You know, I've marched with BLM activists. I routinely sit with homeless guys, um, uh, you know, and, and, and I've gotten comfortable in communities that you wouldn't have expected I would I would live with before, but now I can have those conversations because I've you know I've made a conscious effort to do so and 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 really that's that's probably the most we can expect from you and other guys like us out there. You know, you, I, most people can't don't have the luxury and opportunity to afford to become activists. So it's a matter of living your life and walking the life that you know, God intends for you, but, but being the better version of yourself as you do so. And, and in the context of criminal justice reform, you know, we can get into a lot of specifics of policy. I mean, frankly, there's so, it's a target rich environment where there's so many opportunities with a lot of low hanging fruit. And, you know, I'll, I'll be dedicating the rest of my career to working on those specific items, but, you know, for the average person, it's awareness and consciousness, and then a little bit more mercy in how they judge their fellows. 
appreciate that, that you used move the needle a little bit. And I had this vision, if we all just kind of take our turn moving that needle and we're less dictated to by what the media feeds us in terms of sound bites, they're naturally, naturally will populate more of that compassion you talk about and right. hopefully open up better avenues where we can learn more the the layman i will say amongst us and and in us can receive those messages from guys like you are in the trenches fighting those injustices and i think this has just been a fantastic conversation number one thanks for sharing your story like i know it's it's hard because this is not a superficial story that thad went through and and all his struggles along the way. So very, very grateful and gracious that you did. But also it gives us the other side because it's like the same thing. You went through almost a movie script and we see the movie and we form assumptions and the bad guys and the good guys and it's black and white and it's this and that, but the, the compassion and the humans behind those stories there's some saying and i'll screw it up in hollywood hollywood fiction is made from reality you know they get their stories from reality and this is one of those real stories that you've you are living it's very eye-opening but beyond that so what else is thad doing now that we should know about and where can we follow you because i think your message and what we can learn from you is much more powerful than what we see out there shut some of that stuff off pay attention to guys like that he's he has the hard-earned wisdom and that's 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 doing an injustice no pun intended to to you but but what's what's up with you next what are you learning about what are you doing what are you up to yeah, so, 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 so i i know the um same skepticism that uh you have towards the media can can often be applied into the political realm of of government but um, you know, that too is an area where we have to get involved and engaged in, in bringing that more merciful approach to how we govern our society. I, I, I am hoping to participate in an effort and a dialogue to convince us to rethink crime and punishment in this country. So um, that will be a multi-year effort and um, there's a lot of work to be done. So I, you, you can follow my progress in that on my website, which is thadbarity.com, or on Twitter, which is also thadbarity.com. And, and we're going to be highlighting um, a number of specific issues that are more action-oriented, where people can, at a minimum, vote or hold their elected officials accountable um, and, and or roll up their sleeves in service to help people walk through um, particularly the challenges of re-entry to society post-release from incarceration. So um, I will be working with the state attorney in Hillsborough County, Andrew Warren, as part of his community council to help uh, bring the community's interests and needs to the, the front end prosecutorial side where we're very blessed to have uh, an amazing uh, leader in the form of Andrew Warren, who, who brings a more fair and balanced approach to prosecutorial decisions. And then on the back end in the federal system, I'm going to be working with a uh, federal uh, re-entry pilot program here in the, um, in the Middle District of Florida, where uh, I will be mentoring guys coming out of the system and getting back into community. So, so those are two more tangible aspects, and then there are going to be things along the way. I will be launching a podcast. Uh, like I said, right. Brian, I'd love to learn from you and, um, you know, continue the dialogue and engage in courageous conversations and, and keep uh, bringing attention and awareness to these issues. That's awesome. And again, that it's, it's been really eye-opening, um, heartbreaking, but heartwarming, um, a happy ending to the saga as it continues um, and good luck in your efforts and we'll put in the show notes all of where that is and stuff. And 
you know, this resonated with some folks in terms of, Hey, we need to, we need to open our eyes and our own stories. Cause we, a lot of times we get focused that on that ego a little too much in our stories and it can't get, can't be complete without having the community around us. We're humans and we live in community. It's the only way to exist. And uh, that is living testament to that. So Thad, thanks for being on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. It was really great to be with you. And thank you so much for having me. And I hope we can continue the conversation. Absolutely, sir. All right. I look forward to it.